All right, Paul. So um, a classic air-powered projectile weapon, say a BB gun, typically has a muzzle velocity of 350 feet per second or less. So a BB fired at close range from such a weapon could, could break the skin, uh, but it will not penetrate the skull and, quite frankly, is uh, unlikely to penetrate... Um, other parts of the area of the body, especially through fabric, which is the case for Harry in this scene. So the likelihood of of a BB gun causing that much damage is not uh, is not that significant. However, an iron to the face. Um, let's estimate that the distance from the first floor to the basement uh, is 15 feet, and let's assume that the steam iron that uh, that Kevin sets up to fall on Marv's face weighs approximately four pounds. And let's note that the iron strikes Marv squarely in the mid-face. This is serious impact, and it is enough force to fracture the bones around his, uh, Marv's eyes. This is also what we call, in, in, in medical terminology, a, a blowout fracture and can lead to serious disfigurement and debilitating double vision if not repaired properly. Um, so if we're talking about these scenes in Home Alone and all the significant injuries, there is little doubt that neither Harry nor Marv make it out of that house on their own two feet by their own accord. Um, so what you're saying is the subtitle of this should be Home Alone, colon, Kevin McAllister dash the making of a serial killer. The making of it, or at least like, like um, I recognize that you can kind of, all, we can, we can debate all your day, different types of stand your ground laws, but the, but there is a level of, there is serious potential criminal charges that could be possibly brought against Kevin McAllister for the damage caused to Harry and Marvin, this movie. Uh, there's no doubt. So. Definitely headed to juvie after this is, is is your point. He is a twisted human being, <laughs> to say the least. Oh gracious! Well, let's do a podcast about him and try to find God in it. <laughs> it sounds perfect, man. Uh, All right. Welcome to the reviewers. We're on a mission from God. Yeah, so Paul, I uh, I absolutely love this movie, but I I gotta tell you the the funniest thing to me is when I read these articles about Home Alone and about Harry and Marv and the injuries sustained. Like uh, there are hilarious articles, and some of them written by doctors um, that are like the diagnoses of of the injuries. The funniest one uh, I want to read for you is uh, this is from the week dot uh, com. It's a it's a uh, online news source. Um, Anyway, since the di doctor's diagnosis of that scene where Harry tries to enter uh, the front of the house and the doorknob is heated, uh, you know, you know that scene, like where yeah, the, of course, the big M. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so this is it. The doctor's diagnosis of that scene. If here it goes, if this doorknob is glowing visibly red in the dark, it has likely been heated to about seven hundred and fifty-one degrees Fahrenheit. And Harry gives it a nice, strong one to two second grip. By comparison, if one a second of contact is made with 155 degree water, that is alone. Uh, that is enough alone to cause third degree burns. So the temperature of that doorknob is not quite hot enough to cause Harry's hand to burst into flames, but it is not that far off. 
<laughs> Assuming he doesn't lose the hand completely, he will almost certainly have other serious complications, including a high risk of infection and contracture in which uh, resulting scar tissue seriously limits the flexibility and movement of the hand, rendering it less than 100% useful. Kevin has moved from defending his house into sheer malice, in my opinion. <laughs> This is uh, Home Alone. I don't know, man. Home Alone is, um, yeah, it's it's borderline uh, uh, like morbid. Uh, yeah, like masochistic, uh, yeah. sociopathic. <laughs> We've moved into a, a different level um, with this with this kid. Uh, it's um, such a great movie, though, man. Such a good movie. So, such a good. So you're telling me that sticking it in the snow is not is and is not just going to take care of it, and then later oh. just wrapping a, a handkerchief around it to carry it across a braided rope uh, <laughs> is that 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 would not be a realistic. Um, yeah, I think one to seconds of of, uh, of uh, contact with that doorknob is gonna is gonna uh, render that hand uh, useless if perhaps non-existent um based well, that's, on the doctor's diagnosis so that's good to know also hey i mean it's a helpful way to keep the kids out of the bedroom if uh right yeah. i uh so i think about this movie and and and, and uh i want to hear your thoughts on the second I, one funny little thing though side note is that after seeing this movie when i was a kid my dad and i when my dad and i would um uh, when i would go to bed at night my dad would like kind of um, kind of say goodnight and stuff like that and occasionally if i was like wide awake we would write up plans based on this movie of ways in which i could like booby trap or capture my sisters i've got two older sisters and so it yeah. was like different strategies of like what booby traps i would lay for my sisters in the morning i don't know as a parent now <laughs> if i ever crossed the threshold of like Ah, ha 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 he's catching his sister or if my dad ever thought no son that would actually kill your sisters you can't you can't say that <laughs> like, or like you know kind of having to say something to the effect of like you know you're gonna you need to pump the brakes on that yeah i wonder if my dad, son i have to report you now <laughs> right. I, I wonder what level of um social services we're going to need for you um here in the near future so so tell me about your your first memories of this movie man tell me a little bit about the background of it. i know you've done a little bit of digging um yeah the well they're there's some really good, like, you know, little documentaries and things about the film, um, which I always like digging into. And so this is this is a cool one with a great story. Um, you know, it, it kind of starts with the person who wrote it, John Hughes, which this is the second movie that we've uh, talked about this Advent season that Hughes wrote. He wrote Christmas Vacation, um, and he was just prolific in the 80s, especially for writing movies. In the 80s alone, he wrote 16 movies that got made and directed eight of them, which is just bananas um and they're all like ones that we know well and that, and that we we've heard of so um yeah he he wrote chris's vacation and he called up his friend chris columbus uh, who is uh also a screenwriter he wrote like Goonies, uh, I believe he wrote Goonies, and uh, he certainly wrote Gremlins, another Christmas movie, and he had really been wanting to direct a Christmas movie, and so John Hughes called him up and said, hey, uh, Christmas Vacation, I think you'd be great for this. So originally, Chris Columbus was uh, set up to direct Christmas Vacation. However, and Ben 
I know how much you love Clark Griswold and the man behind him, Chevy Chase. And I, and I love him too, but you know, we, we have to accept hard facts in life. And um, it has been pretty well documented throughout Hollywood that Chevy Chase is just not always the nicest person to work with on a movie set. Have you heard this? I, I have, I have, okay. I think the truth and I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it now. I'm okay, okay. with it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Good. A, um, yeah. He's a bit of a hard nut to crack. Um, yeah. We, we can hold two truths in, in our hands at the same time. We can hold that Chevy Chase is maybe a difficult actor to work with. And he's also a comedic genius, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the way that this difficult truth worked itself out in uh, the case of Chris Columbus and Christmas Vacation is that <laughs> Chevy Chase hated Chris Columbus, apparently. And just, I mean, he was a green director. He was pretty new and... Uh, Chevy just didn't think that he had uh, the the bona fides to uh, to do the directing, and so uh, Chris Columbus called John Hughes and was like, "I got to get out. I got to, you know, can't do this." And John Hughes said, "I don't blame you." And about a week later, knowing how much Columbus still wanted to direct a Christmas movie, Hughes said, "Well, you know, I I just wrote a script a couple weeks ago for a movie called Home Alone, and so that's how." Uh, Chris Columbus gets atta uh, attached to this script. And uh, yeah, so just a really cool story there. Um, I mean, a little fun fact about that too, with uh, just, I mean, well, not fun fact, but just kind of connecting the dots. Chevy Chase might hate uh, Christopher Columbus, oh, Christopher Columbus, excuse me, Chris Columbus. Um, <laughs> a different guy. Um, but might hate Chris Columbus, but who gets the last laugh? Because Chris Columbus goes on to then direct, uh, he's Harry Potter too. Uh, yeah. He's yeah. Potters. Uh, and so like, no offense, but I think that I love Christmas vacation and I love the national lampoons, but something tells me in the grand scheme of cinematic history, the Harry Potters are probably going to go on to live a much longer life than those. Uh, yeah. And certainly um, more box office receipts. So, which yeah. is what the industry cares about. So, um, yeah, uh, I learned that other folks were considered uh, to to play the robbers. Did you know that uh, John Lovitz, Robert mm -hmm. De Niro were in, um, you know, consideration, but ultimately they uh, went, I think it was one of those things that once Joe Pesci kind of got in their mind, they were like, we got to go this route. Like he's going to be the perfect guy. Um, and this was right around the time of Goodfellas. I think he had just done Goodfellas. Uh, and so, you know, just that type of uh, personality thrown yeah. into a, um, a, a man menacing a child uh, just had a certain comedic uh, promise I, I, to it. I think I've read somewhere too a while back that uh, that that Joe Pesci very intentionally like scared Macaulay Culkin to the point where I mean like he would he would always try to intimidate him like behind the scenes um, and like they had an interesting relationship where like sometimes you see like a children actor and like an adult actor being like friendly behind the scenes Joe Pesci did not come out of character and was like intentionally trying to scare him throughout that would I did not hear that but it wouldn't surprise me apparently he was not the easiest to work with on the set like he had a very strict uh like golf schedule like he had to play at least nine holes of golf in the morning so his call times he wouldn't let them be before 
you know, like nine o'clock or something like that. So he could wake up and get nine holes of golf in before. Um, so, uh, yeah. And, and the other thing with him too is apparently he has said that the only way that he can read a script, uh, that, that he gets is if he throws in like every fourth word, every fifth word, he throws in the F bomb. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you watch his movies and it, it tracks, right. I mean, uh, so obviously with this being a PG movie, he couldn't do that. And uh, so he ended up basically inventing, you know, curse words that he could throw in. And and that's one of the funniest things about his character to me is that fricker, 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 you know, just the mumbo jumbo nonsense. Uh, it was pretty, a pretty smart way of going about it. Yeah, it's funny. Too funny. Brilliant. So. Um, another cool thing about this movie is they filmed it all in an abandoned high school, uh, the same high school where Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, was filmed and uh, the same uh, high school where that was used for Uncle Buck, you know, two other John Hughes uh, vehicles. So, yeah, it's it's a, a school in, in um, outside, of, outside of Chicago. Um yeah. And so they just they just built everything in there, uh, built built the house, the, the inside of the house. Obviously, they found a, a house in um, uh, around Chicago that uh, that worked for um, the setting. So yeah, just really cool facts like that that um, that I thought were neat. They got John Williams to score it, which was like you know such a big grab. I mean. It, all the famous Hollywood uh, scores in in history have his name attached to them, and and they kind of just took a shot in the dark and was like, oh, what if we tried to get John Williams to score this? And he did. Um, so you got That's something cool. to say? There's no, there's a, there's a lot of good stuff, a lot of fun facts. I mean, I think that um, that that another fun fact for for is is that the whole John Candy piece uh and, and role in that with the polka kings yes polka, um is polka, all polka, polka, polka. Yeah. uh but he improvised all of that um and so all he improvised was able just to like go with it which just kind of shows john candy's genius and i can't imagine i i have no idea i haven't read much about it but i, I would imagine that Catherine o'hara could not have contained herself um, and a lot of that, if if she has no idea what John Candy's about to say, because some of his lines are uh, great, like uh, just like the Flintstones, like oh, okay, cool, uh, yeah. Or, or uh, after locking the kid, leaving the kid in the um, in the funeral home, you know, yeah. he's okay. He started talking again. <laughs> um, no, but they actually worked together. Uh, I think doing like Canadian improv back in the day. So. Um, there was some familiarity there and I bet it was a lot of fun being, being on set with them. But one of the cool things that I learned, he worked for uh, one day of filming, but it ended up being 23 hours and he got paid scale, basically the bare minimum that you could be paid because he was kind of doing this as a favor. So uh, turns out that the guy who plays the pizza delivery boy made more money on home alone than john candy did wow that's crazy yeah that's crazy that's bananas but speaking of money this movie made a lot of it it was the number one movie uh at the box office for 
like week after week after week after week. Um, it really when it wasn't expected to do all that much. And um, at the end made over uh, a quarter of a billion dollars. So, which, you know, was big, big chunk of change, especially in those days um, when uh, maybe movies weren't marketed globally as much and all this. So, yeah, yeah, cool, uh, cool story behind it and lots of cool stuff in it. So, um, I don't know, man, where'd you see God pop up in this thing? Yeah, you know, I think um, there's there's kind of, Obviously, like the like the thing that like a lot of people remember for this movie is just the Marvin Harry and the actual breaking in and the actual kind of um, the 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 scene of him like defending his house and stuff like that. That's what like the memorable and lovable part of this movie. But I think ultimately, you know, this movie is a movie about reconciliation and it's about um, kind of fractured relationships or wayward relationships and and the way in which they are uh they kind of goes through some painful moments in order to realize like one's own waywardness and one's own like stubbornness you know and if, for example like with with kevin McAllister, i mean you know there's that scene where when they're all it's the night before and everybody's like looking you know he, he causes dinner he ruins dinner because he like hits buzz or, like tackles buzz and like look what you did you little jerk uh uh yeah that's exactly right so that you know there's that scene where he like kind of ruins the family's dinner as a result and kind of storms off and then his mom and and here kind of in upstairs and he's about he's being sent up to the attic and um he he kind of said he wishes like he didn't have a family he kind of wishes that he had a different family and that he didn't see you know he and that he would wake up the next morning and that they wouldn't be there. And, um, and, you know, I think that everybody has probably had that feeling at some point, um, it has probably caused some relationship or has had that sentiment of being like, well, it would be better off if I just didn't have you in my life or I would, I would be better off or I would be, um, a happier person or I'd be able to do the things that I want to do if you were not a part of my life. I think that like children have said that to their parents, siblings have said that to one another, spouses have probably said that to one another at some point um, in, in a fit of anger. And there's just a reality to like, each of us have felt that. Um, And I think that realistic, if we're being honest, even the, even the most um, devout followers of Jesus have said that to God at some point. Right. Of just being like, well, my life would just be so much better off if like you weren't a part of it. Um, and I think that that for me is what this whole story is about. Um, I mean, it's fun and it's packaged as like a kid that defends off burglars of his house. But I think that there's a reality of the plot line of of Kevin is that over time he realizes how much he needs his family, and how much he longs for his family. And at the same time. I mean, Catherine O'Hare is not necessarily the most innocent of mothers. She's she's frustrated at her son. Um, she's angry at him um, as a result. Um, and and her whole the whole plot line from her angle is her desperately trying to get back to her child, um, right? To to repair that relationship um, and to make sure that um, that like that that there is some sense of reconciliation at the end that he's not alone. Um, and him and her fear is that he's just home alone by himself, and like the like that he's that she's being an absent parent as a result. Um, and I think it's the story of her getting back to her child. And to me, there's just tremendous parallels, obviously here. The obvious 
the obvious parallel being just that of, of uh, the story of the prodigal son, right? Um, and the ways in which um, God, uh, um, you know, we can be wayward and stubborn children, um, and God goes, does everything that God can do to to re- to to open up God's arms and, and welcome us back home and to pursue us. Uh, right. And it's really the story of Catherine Hare coming back and pursuing Kevin um, and Kevin coming to the understanding of like the ways in which he's he's guilty for being um, stubborn in a way and, and you know, and, and kind of uh, straying away and being kind of a wayward child, uh, straying from his parents. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the prodigal son, you know, that's positioned there in that chapter of Luke um, where there's the lost parables together there's there's that the lost son there's the lost sheep and then there's the, the lost coin where the woman you know has what 10 coins and she loses one of them and and she and, and the image is uh just of her on her hands and knees just frantically just looking all over this house turning over all the furniture all this sort of stuff just looking for this coin and she uh, Catherine O'Hare very much um portrays that i feel like in this it's just this um this dogged dedicated focused um you know pursuit. desire will pursuit to get her son back you know at, at all costs whatever it takes and yeah it there is that's such a comforting reminder to know that god pursues us that way yeah, that's right. And it's interesting too, just when you look at those three um, stories all back to back to back, I mean, the prodigal son kind of makes more sense in the context of those three, three things, right? Yeah, definitely. You've got son who is, um, who it is the prodigal son who runs away, right? Um, um, and then you've got like the sheep who runs away, and, but does she, sheep don't like Def, do it out of defiance they right. do it out of like just kind of being a stupid sheep <laughs> it's, just, it's just natural for a, a sheep to go away but then there's interesting but like you said there's an interesting piece like, like a coin's an inanimate object the coin did not lose itself right the coin lost was like misplaced right the coin fell like there was nothing that the coin did to lose it mm-hmm. and there's interesting ways in which god's relationship with us looks different in each of those three because there's ways in which we are sometimes lost by no, not necessarily anything of our own doing. It's not, I mean, there, there's ways in which we do it um, stubbornly, like, like the child, like the prodigal son. There's ways in which we do it kind of because we don't know any better, almost like the sheep. Um, And then there's ways in which like we, life happens to us and we kind of get lost in the mix like a coin in some ways. And and yet no matter in each of those circumstances, how much to, to what extent we are guilty of losing ourselves or just finding ourselves in a moment of lostness, uh, God pursues us. Right. Um, yeah. that's, so it's interesting to kind of see that parallel too with, with um, in home alone and kind of the ways in which Catherine goes, uh, Catherine, as if we're best friends, um, Catherine O'Hara goes to, to pursue the, Kevin. So y'all used to date, right? You and Kate. Yeah, you and Kate. Yeah, yeah. She's she she wouldn't remember me. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> but you remember her, <laughs> or she would tell you that she doesn't remember me. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, what about you, man? What else do you see in this? So, um, I found myself really focusing on that. I really focusing on the title, quite honestly, and particularly the first word, home. Like home is so central to uh, the theme of this film. Um, and it 
got me thinking a, a lot. Like, obviously, the wish this is a wish fulfillment movie. You know, if you could have your wildest dream come true, Kevin's is I could be home alone, I could be home without you guys. And it raises the question for me is home a place that is meant to be enjoyed alone? Uh, or is it meant to be shared? Like, what is home in its fullest sense? Is it a, a, a place where you can be um, fully isolated and and be just by yourself? Or is it a place that is meant to be shared? And I guess I was kind of thinking about that because I've been writing some Advent devotionals this week for our our church. I've, I've got the... Um, you know, each staff member writes a week worth of devotionals and, and the lectionary readings for Advent 4 or the week that I have. And so I've been looking at those. And one of them is um, the text from Isaiah where he pronounces that, um, you know, the, the one that the Israelites are expecting will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And, uh, and, and then there's the psalm that week, which is very much a psalm of... Um, confession and lament and asking God to rescue and save and inherent in, in both of those, both the name God with us and that Psalm of communal confession is that it's not individualistic, uh, that we're calling as individuals, but we're also calling as a group of people, a collective um, humanity for God to come be with us and rescue us. It's not Emmanuel, God with me. It's Emmanuel, God with us. And when the angels come to the shepherds and declare a great news, what they say it's a great news that will be for all the people. And I think that there is powerful and provocative and honestly challenging message in there for American Christianity, because when we talk about a relationship with Jesus, Ben, what do we talk about? We talk about um, Jesus making a home in my heart, my own personal relationship with Jesus. And obviously, of course, that's that's part of it. But we have got to be careful in a culture that is so hyper individualistic and um, so oh, okay with you know our own um, individual rights and individual you know freedoms and all these things, which which uh, good we we sh should be, but um, we can't do that at the expense of the communal and this idea that God cares for all of us and that um, maybe the ideal isn't to be home alone, but the ideal is for home to be a place that we share as, you know, full, free, authentic people being our full, free, authentic selves, but in community with others who are also doing the same, you know, maybe that is truly what a home is. And does that make a home messy? Yes, right. That home at the beginning of this movie is incredibly messy. It is chaos. Um, you know, look at look at the house of Israel all throughout the Old Testament, right? It is messy, it is chaotic, it is ugly, it it is not perfect, but 
it's better than um but it's it's better than being alone we're not it is not good for man to be alone right that's 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 from the very beginning of uh this story of god's connection and relationship with humanity um so i i, I don't know what what are your thoughts on that you know you were you're saying a second ago like the the idea of um God coming in and, and dwelling among us. You know, one of my favorite, uh, do you read, do you use the message a lot? I, I mean, we, we, I know that the message is not necessarily like, um, everyone's yeah. favorite translation, but I, yeah, I, I think I, it's, I think it's really helpful sometimes. Absolutely. I think it's, I think it can be great. Um, you know, I think that there's some of the questions of the message and, and that type of thing is I understand to some extent, but I also think that like, what a what a pastor Eugene Peterson was to to recognize like that it's not necessarily some of the versions of scripture that we have aren't necessarily like the clearest and kind of don't make sense all the times. But one of my favorite translations um, that uh, that uh, Eugene Peterson uses is in uh, the first chapter of John. Um, and it's a, it's the John 14 passage, which, uh, you know, the, it's, it's essentially the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, yeah. John that, 1 14. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Eugene Peterson says, instead of dwelt among us, which the, which the, um, the language there that's actually, that's used, um, uh, in the Greek is the idea of like dwelt among us or to kind of set one's tabernacle, um, kind of to, mm. to live there but the way that eugene peterson trains like that is that god came and moved into the neighborhood um and uh I, I i do love that imagery a little bit more so of just the idea of like saying that god dwelt among us like some people can say well god dwells in my heart like you said a second ago but really the idea is like no god came and he moved into the neighborhood um yeah. like became our neighbor right um and became our collective neighbor not he moved into my neighborhood or he moved into um like you know, I became my next door neighbor. The idea that God comes and resides among all of us, I think is a really important thing for us to appreciate and to understand um, about who God is, and God's relationship with us, not just a relationship with me. So anyway, yeah. Gonna... yeah, he's not, it, it's not my personal Jesus. It's, um, you know, he is one and we, and we all conform ourselves around him and figure, figure him out together and dwell dwell with him um as he dwells among us um like all good neighbors there's there's ways in which the neighbors um are are blessings but they can also be challenging to work with i mean like you mm -hmm. know there's, there's a i don't want to i'm not necessarily saying that about god but i am saying to your point just a second ago about the, the idea of home life being yeah. sometimes um and things kind of being a little bit in disarray uh it's just the reality of our humanness um yeah. uh in relationship with god is that like it's not all prim and proper and put together uh it kind of looks yeah. like it looks like milk flying across the uh, pizza and like yeah. uh spilling out all across the dining room table and everybody yeah. having to help to um clean it up afterwards so absolutely but the point of this movie is that it's better than the alternative and yeah, if I mean, we keep yeah. siphoning ourselves off into these individualistic little home alone types of, of ways of, of being with God. We, we are dividing something that cannot be divided is not meant to be divided, which is to say, we're just living a lie. We're living in a, a, a an illusion of our own making, um, while God is out there among the people. 
Um, so, okay. So this idea of home also, it, it provoked within me the question of is home, uh, something more than a, a physical space. And of course we know it's more than just a physical space, but is it, is it even something more than just a metaphorical structure? Um, because, you know, Kevin abandons his home at the end. That's kind of an ironic piece here, right? Like his whole thing is about protecting his home, but to protect his home, what does he do? He essentially destroys it by creating all these, you know, masochistic, terrible, like death traps, and then like leaves it, uh, you know, ab abandons it and goes to the Murphy's house. Um, so but but when he does that, even though he does that, he is still preserving the heart of what the home is meant to protect, right? He's preserving himself. He's preserving his family. And so I think that there is a message there about what home really is, you know, and, and home. And I, I know this is cheesy and this is not anything that any other Christmas movie hasn't said a thousand times, but maybe they say it so often because it's, it's true is that it home is the relationships home is the, um, the, the beating heart that the walls or the systems or the structures are meant to protect. And I think there's a message there for, uh, religion as well, because, you know, since, since Jesus himself or, or the prophets before him, you know, we have been, um, struggling with protecting the home, i.e. the structure, the religion, the way that it's supposed to be done, quote unquote, versus um, preserving the thing that the home is meant to protect, which is the, the truth of God desiring to be with us and among us and teach us and show us how to live and, and love and be with one another. Um so sometimes I think we do have to abandon the uh, the structure of the home in order for that truth to be preserved, like Kevin did. Yeah, you know, I think that's kind of a little bit what the Gospels are about um, in relationship to to the Old Testament, uh, in particular, is this idea of like the home being redefined um, through Christ, right? Um, like a little bit of like the nature of what the temple is um, in the Old Testament, so what the nature of like of who the temple is um, uh, to some extent uh, in, in the New Testament and just like it, it pivoting over time, right? It was a um, the tabernacle travel in the beginning and then it was a temple um, and then it was the place where God lived and the place where God resides and the place where God can be seen and known uh, developed in, into Christ, right? Um, and then it kind of is now for us um today obviously christ plays a huge role in it but like in a lot of ways it's an ecclesiology of like the, of, of the, the the manifestation the visibility of god in the world is the church like uh, um, and the nature of like a we as a collective um a we are the, the church is the home um, mm -hmm. of god um, it, not to say that god only resides there right like sure. it's not like i don't necessarily believe that but the idea that like if we can see where the heart of god is um, we should be able to see that in the church. That's our role as the church uh, is to be able to reflect in the world. That's just an interesting reflection of how home shifts a little bit in this movie too, right? Uh, mm -hmm. like 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and even with, even with church being, you know, home for God today, like you said, in whatever that means, um, how many different ways does church look right? Uh, they're so, so, so different. Um, so yeah, an important message. What else do you have to note? Um, I, I hear from you on this that you, okay. You, well, well us, uh, I, tell me a little bit about actually you know, one of my favorite characters um, in this is uh, old man Marley. And I know that you've got some, some thoughts about Marley. that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I love him. I think he's just so sweet in that church. What scene. a great, yeah. What a great character. I think he's, he's kind of the heart of the film in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, so the, the church scene is great. Although I have, I have a nit to pick first and a question that I have to ask, uh, Ben, and I'm hoping you can shed some light on this for me, but it really bugs me. There are like over 30 kids in that choir and there is nobody in the church. Where are the parents? Where, I I mean, at least you would think the parents would be there on Christmas Eve hearing these kids sing. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, it's, well, it's fascinating. You'd have a kid's choir to sing on Christmas Eve as a Christmas choir. You know, I I don't know. Is that a a Christmas Eve service or is it just a choir um, singing? You know, it's fascinating. I thought, you know, I've been um, I've been to some concerts before where there's like very low attendance. Though I, I you know, I've been to some. Uh, yeah. I I um, did a year of divinity school over in England, and there were some church events that took place where it was that uh, that scarce in terms of the attendance. Right, right. Because it was so common practice for kids to be singing everywhere, but I don't know. It was a little depressing. Not Interesting. Maybe just well, the parents dropping the kids off and then either take, taking care of some elf business or just going to Christmas parties or. Yeah, I thought it was a rehearsal at first. I mean, like in the grand schemes, it would seem like it'd be rehearsal, but it, but it is a Christmas Eve. I mean, it's clearly. Christmas yes. Eve. I mean, because the, the clock chimes like eight at the end of it. So it's a, it's a late yeah. rehearsal. If, if it, who knows, who knows <laughs> I'm digging too deep. Who am I to step on Chris Columbus's toes here? Um, but it certainly allows for an emptier sanctuary, which allows for uh, Kevin and Marley to have a conversation. And I'm so glad that they did because, uh, and this is something interesting that, I, you know, seeing this movie, who knows how many times. And, uh, but this was a new thing that occurred to me this time. Uh, it's kind of on the theme of grudges, right? Marley talks about how, um, you know, families can be difficult and you can, um, you can, love your family so much, but, but show that love in a weird way and even end up hurting them sometimes. And he talks about how he and his son had a fight years and years ago. And, uh, they both shared that they didn't want to speak to each other anymore. And they've held this grudge ever since. And they've not spoken to each other, not talked to each other, not even around Christmas, um, which is, you know, shocking to Kevin. And it helped me to kind of realize in that moment that, huh, so old man Marley has kind of imprisoned himself into being home alone by holding this grudge. And, um, you know, he's he's got a home, but he's got no family to share it with. And that's the exact same thing with Kevin. Kevin is home alone because of this stubbornness, you know, that he, he's home, but he's got no family there. And it really pointed to me about how our stubbornness 
can isolate us and um and doesn't matter it <laughs> i know for me uh i see it track from my however young i am and have been to a however old i may be i know stubbornness is something that i will wrestle with and grapple with and no matter how young or old that is the power that it has it can isolate you and put you at home alone all by yourself having your own little pity party and that's the the power of of forgiveness you know to have a family that works and um that is thriving and that comes together and that actually is a family forgiveness has to be a part of it like you were saying at the beginning reconciliation right and and is this not the whole point of the gospel as well is you know for us to have this familial connection with god and one another together with god reconciliation forgiveness has to be a part of it otherwise we do just continue to isolate ourselves and be at home alone that's right you know, one of the one of the to kind of piggyback right off of that too is um, it reminds me of that passage that I cannot remember for the life of me. I've been racking my brain right now to think of where it was, uh, but it's that passage of scripture where essentially it's it's um, uh, it's about people who come to the altar um, to offer their um, to to offer their kind of praise and, and gifts yeah. to God, um, and then I think it's Jesus that's teaching this that says you know essentially that you you. Before you come up here to the altar and leave your gifts, you got to go back and make amends with the people mm -hmm. around. And it's this interesting thing, I think, around Christmas that happens. And seeing this movie, too, is it's fascinating to me how like grudges be can become so you can you can see more clearly around the holidays how such dumb little grudges are, are how, 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 how dumb they can actually be. Um, yes. I don't know if it's just the the sentimentality of, of Christmas that causes us to do that, or if it's just, or if there's something more to it of just the idea that like, it's around the holidays that, you know, grudges with coworkers or grudges with family or like little things can just seem like so silly and secondary. And it, it, it kind of, it's, I think it's a revelation that Marley and that, um, that Kevin have in this movie but it reminds me of the work of God kind of in us, the idea of like when God draws near, there is a need for us um, to go make amends with one another and mm. for us to see how before praising God, before Christ comes and dwells among us, for us to, to, to go out and do practice reconciliation with one yeah. another, right? We got to set the table. Yeah, man, I I love that point, and I, I'll I'll say I think we've done some some great mining of uh, spiritual angles for Home Alone, and um, I was so excited to talk about the ones that I had discovered that I uh, totally neglected to ask a question at the beginning that I think this movie especially begs uh, uh, to be asked um, because uh, we were both kids when this came out. Um, I think it was what like 90 perhaps 90 right uh maybe. yeah i think i think it was 90 uh when it came out and so uh we were we were both young and i remember where where i was and uh i would just love to hear what history do you have with with home alone how did you first encounter it and how did it strike you as a kid 
Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of like home alone references in my childhood. I mentioned one earlier, like, you know, where after we saw this movie, my dad and I would stay up at night and kind of plot how to trap my sisters um, as a result of it. And I would even draw like blueprints out um, in, in preparation for it. But I also remember, um, I mean, like that, the, the soundtrack of this movie, um, I can kind of remember that song over and over again, because I remember it was also a video game and I don't remember if it was on Game Boy or what, but like, like kind of the electronic sounding soundtrack of this movie kind of echoes through my head just because I I remember playing that game all the time. And I think that like with the home alone, you're just trying to kind of get through the house or whatever, and you're kind of having to go over the booby traps and stuff like that. It was a fun little game. I, you know, to me, it's, it, it, um, when it came out, I can remember the sp- specific house that we were living in. We didn't always live around the corner. But when we first moved to Smithfield and in, in probably, I think we moved to Smithfield um, in 89. Uh, and we lived for a year in a house that was up uh, north of, uh, of Market Street. Um, uh, it, it was kind of by the soccer fields. Um, uh, and and so we were, uh, we lived there. And, and to me, like there, that house was built a little bit more like the McAllister's. It was kind of a, a little bit like a taller house and kind of. Had, That's the McAllister section of town. Yeah. It had a little bit <laughs> That's funny. The Winnetka of, um, of Smithfield, if you will. Uh, uh, Winnetka is, I think, the town where the, this was. Yeah, yeah, it is. So they, um, but it was, it, it kind of it had two staircases. And I just think that was one. It had like a kind of a main staircase and they had a back staircase going in the kitchen. It just kind of reminds me of, of that house a little bit more, but. It, uh, this movie will always remind me of that house because I think we saw it in that house for the first time too. Um, and it's okay. just a fun thing. So that's that's where I was in life. What what uh, memories does this movie stir up for you? Yeah, man. So oddly enough, I can actually remember going to the theater to see this movie, um, and which is crazy because I I would have been five years old if this was ninety, almost six, I guess. Um, but. Uh, and so I remember my, my good friend Rayford, good buddy. And, uh, his mom took me and him, um, and, uh, the nearest theater was like Wilson or Goldsboro or something, somewhere like that. So we had to drive a little ways, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And she took us there to see this movie. And I just remember, and there were so many kids there. I remember, cracking up the whole time in that last you know 20 30 minutes um where they're just going through the the hell house that kevin has created and um man it was so much fun and i remember walking out and rayford who was a year older than me so i always looked up to him uh as just this just all of my wisdom and knowledge of life came from Rayford because of course he was a great ahead of me. So, um, he had, he had learned the stuff that I was yet to learn. And, 11 months uh, experience. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he, uh, stopped me in the parking lot. I remember he just put his hands on my shoulders very seriously and said, and you know, Paul, that is the way that you can always tell if somebody's a robber, they always have, a gold tooth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he told funny. me that. And I was immediately terrified because not long before my dad had gone to the dentist and had gotten a filling. And for the filling, he had 
chosen the gold filling <laughs> and he was proud about that and he showed me his gold filling um, and so i was very nervous because now rayford had told me that anybody with a gold tooth was a robber and so uh i didn't know that if this was one of those things where if all people with gold teeth are robbers or all robbers have gold teeth. Like, how does this work? And what does this mean for my dad? That's too funny. <laughs> and yeah. could some kid, you know, that's, um, destroy that's, him one day? Yeah, that's a very clear, uh, clear memories of gold teeth. It is, it is fascinating how much they emphasize that gold tooth, but I guess, or, or I don't know, uh, it's just fascinating that it's, um, uh, it's a theme because it clearly remember. I mean, I clearly remember like gold teeth being like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a, um, that's the sign of someone who's up to no good. Um, it's a result of, it's funny that <laughs> I just never named it. I think that Rayford named it. So yeah, that's yep. Rayford called it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, speaking of, uh, the gold teeth and, and Harry and Marv, I know we haven't talked a lot about them, uh, thus far, which is, you know, sad in one way because there's such a funny part of it. Um, it's harder to find maybe some of the spiritual, uh, you know, angles to uh, where where that the plot might um, provoke that involve them. Although I, I do think there is something to be said for, um, you know, home being a, a sacred space that you hold and uh, what it means when somebody comes in and invades that space, um, you know, yeah to not even just rob it but just to to go in and and mess around and uh uninvited and, guests. yeah and yeah uninvited guests and uh uh you know i i when i was in fifth grade um our house was was broken into and they uh, a lot of stuff was stolen and i just remember even at that young age i remember he stole my cds uh which i kept on the top of my bed and so I remember thinking that, wow, this guy had to climb on top of my bed, like where I sleep every night to grab these CDs, all of which, you know, held meaning for me and everything. You know, you don't have a lot as a kid. And so that was special stuff to me. So I just remember the sense of violation. I can only imagine, imagine what my mom felt, it took all her jewelry, all that sort of stuff. And so I think there is a, a message there about how, you know, when... Um, when people, especially as pastors, you know, when they invite us into these special areas of our lives, of, of their lives, um, we need to treat that with great reverence and respect and, um, not go in like, uh, Harry and Marv when they're in the, uh, the Murphy's house and, and Marv's, you know, just making all the noise and wrecking everything with the crowbar and just absolutely disrespecting, um, the artifacts of these people's lives. And so uh, I, I do think that there are some spiritual truths that they can remind us of, but I have to say, gotta be honest. Every time I watch this movie, Ben, I play a little game and that game is who would you rather be? Like wow. if you had to be Harry or if you had to be Marv and you had to sustain the injuries that these guys sustained, which was the lesser of two evils? Like which, which one would you be most likely to walk out? of and survive right and so i didn't know if you would want to play a little game of who would you rather be right now a hundred percent yeah totally i um I, I mean i have a 
I go back and forth. You know, I, I read a lot of articles about the medical diagnoses. Of these a lot, a lot of articles. I read, yeah, I read a lot of articles. <laughs> so, so Paul, I um, I don't have anything else to do other than read articles about Home Alone these days. Uh, but I um, I, you know, I read some stuff, and I think that obviously all of the all of the physical trauma aside, there is one thing that I don't think I could handle at all. Um, and that is that tarantula, like mm. cannot handle spiders, can't handle them. Wow. Um, and like the idea of a tarantula being on my face, um, and it's on Marv's face, right? So like yep. he places the tarantula on his face. I could, I could sustain other in, in, uh, injuries and probably get through them. Um, maybe my physical body couldn't get through them, but like my mental, emotional, um, well-being would probably still be intact. But if someone ever stuck a tarantula on my face, I would be through the roof. And there's one scene, I mean, it's it's on um it's on Harry's chest too, right? Marv yeah. hits a crowbar yeah. and stuff like that. But but uh but Harry can't see it. Um like yeah. you can't your chest isn't your face. Yeah. He doesn't know. But like you cannot you could not put a tarantula on my face and me live to tell that story. Um Interesting. Interesting. That is that. Uh, uh, so one of the things too, that I learned about that scene is that um, Daniel Stern, they had to put the spider on his face and he had to mime screaming, but he couldn't actually scream because if he actually screamed, then it would scare the tarantula and it would probably do something pretty, pretty terrible. <laughs> um, so he had to, you know, really act in that moment, miming a scream and then go in and, and dub it later. Um, okay. So it's interesting that you say that because Ben, I'll, I'll share a little piece of my life with you. Guess who has had a a tarantula on their face? Oh my God. Yeah. Why? Willingly, willingly. So we were in Belize on a mission trip and the place where we were staying, um, it was some seminary or something. I can't remember where it was, but um, there was a big field and apparently tarantulas, you know, are a plenty in those parts. And, uh, one of the things we would do at night is go tarantula hunting, not hunting to kill them, just, just hunting to, to get them. And these, these were not the, these were not poisonous, uh, tarantulas or if not poisonous, very mildly. So, <laughs> so the, we weren't endangering our lives. Um, in doing this but uh yeah i remember going out with flashlights and finding them and you know we we had a you know a local person um there to assure us that this was okay to do and uh yeah i remember finding one and he was like go ahead put it on your face and i was like really he said yeah see what happens you know you'll be all right (laughs) paul said okay hey i don't turn down dares remember (laughs) <laughs> so, um, yeah, I put the tarantula on my face, let them walk around a while. I got, uh, I got pictures of, I have to, I'll have to find those. I'll find one and send, and send it to you. And, uh, you so <laughs> I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm finding it to you and I'll send it to you Mul- multiple, multiple ones. Um, so yeah, so that doesn't scare me as much. Let, let, let me run through a, um, I made a quick inventory of, of what happens to these guys. So um 
here's I'll read what what happens to each of them individually, and then I'll read the uh the things that happens to to both of them. Um, Harry gets uh, a BB in um around his nether regions. Um, he slips up the front stairs and falls on his back uh twice in very painful fashion. It looks like, um, he holds the molten doorknob. Um, which we now learn would almost burst his hand into flames, which is crazy to think about. Um, he gets a blowtorch to the skull. Um, he gets glue. He gets glue and feathers. Yeah. Easily, easily the the least threatening of all these. Um, and then let's see. Uh, yeah, he gets he he gets hit across the chest with the crowbar with the uh uh tarantula um uh the trip wire um do what like this one he had a paint can does he not get the paint can the yeah i'm uh, i'm that one that comes into the shared into the shared portion of the ah, inventory. The yeah these are things that he sustained alone um and then when it when it came time to get hit with a snow shovel he got hit in the face with it then Marv gets a BB to the head, as you um, noticed in our opening. Uh, he slips down the basement stairs and his crowbar falls on his head. Um, he slips outside again. Um, he has the iron falling on his face. Uh, he gets a nail in his foot um, and then falls down the stairs onto the concrete. Uh, he has ornament shards on his bare feet, which those sound effects, when that happens are just, oh my God, they're so effective because it just sounds so freaking painful. Um, and then, like you said, tarantula is on his face. He gets hit with a crowbar elsewhere. And when he gets hit with a snow shovel, he gets hit on the back of the head. Uh, and then the things that they share are the micro machine slip, which they, they catch some serious air in doing that. Uh, did you have micro machines? I did. I did. Yeah. yeah. Those, those were some cool toys, man. Um, cool. Yep. Uh, they both get paint cans to the face uh, and fall down the stairs. Um, and uh, yeah, they both zip line into the brick wall. So definitely, you, you know, you don't want to be either of these guys. But no. and used to, I was more of a hairy guy. I, I Or excuse me, I was more of a, I would rather be hairy because that iron to the face that Marv takes, like... Mm -hmm. I just as we, as we note, noted earlier, it would be a blowout fracture, as they call it. <laughs> yeah. It just yeah. means like a shattering. It's not like a. It's not a. Um. It's, it's not just a sim a clean break. It's right. More of a <laughs> it's yeah yeah. It's more of a um elephant man type of uh, injury. Yeah. So, um, but, but, lat the. After I've watched it and and thinking about just the the pain of of the fires and all these sorts of things, I think I think I would rather be Harry. So um, excuse excuse me excuse me. I think I would rather be Marv and and not like to be Harry um, because just the the you know whatever it is first degree burns and the and the uh, head on fire. Um, I I just don't know that I could take it. I feel like with Marv, the only really hard thing that I would have to take again is the 
total facial collapse of the iron on my, <laughs> on my head. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point, man. I mean, the fire is, is, is real. The fire is real in that yep. movie. Yep. Yeah. So, and well, this has been fun. This has been fun. What do you think, man? Do we canonize it? Mm. You know, I just, I feel like I'm being so too generous lately. Um, but it's the season but, of giving. It is a season of giving, and we were we were honest at the jump that these are like our three, you know, these are on the Rushmore of Christmas movies for for us. And so, um, and I honestly, I was surprised at how much I found. Like we didn't even talk about all the stuff that I found in there that really um, held some some spiritual weight to it for me. So yeah, man, I'm I'm definitely canonizing. I think we need a good solid. Um, christmas movie section of the cinematic canon yeah I'm, i agree with you i'm there and the fact that john hughes now has two in the canon yeah is pretty he's practically the paul of our of our canon at this point <laughs> that's I mean, exactly right he is the there. apostle the apostle uh john hughes until uh somebody else comes in and, and unseats him um i don't know well we, we've got spielberg in there a couple times don't we with the, the well saving private ryan we were we were close i think i think there was a little bit of of iffiness on that jurassic park was was a go for sure so so maybe maybe we've got a peter paul type of um competition here for apostolic hierarchy okay. awesome well friend it's been a pleasure appreciate it i hope that y'all have an awesome it has been. Uh, uh celebrating and preparing absolutely um, so. expecting and uh we've got one more of these correct that's right one more and uh you want to share what it is because this is the one this is the one that uh we we hadn't yet shared but you you mentioned it was on in your house while we were doing one and it's become a holiday classic at the at the adams household um so so we're gonna we're gonna explore it it's that wonderful movie that a lot of people love. I mean, it might not be universally as embraced as the previous ones that we've done, but it's um, it proves that love actually is all around. Love um, actually. Yep. So not not love hypothetically or love imaginarily, but yep. love actually. actually. Okay. Awesome. Hey Let's man, any 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 anything with Hugh Grant, I'm there. Well. As soon as I say that, I remember his problematic sort of sort of stuff from the from the nineties. Again, we can hold two truths in our hands at one time, right? Any movie with Hugh Grant in it, uh, I'll be there. Robert Downey Jr. flick, I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool, awesome. All right, man. Well, we'll see you next week. All right, buddy. Sounds great. 